it's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. A covenant with life. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to this place with hearts eager to be in your presence. Lord, we've spent all week, we've spent all week dealing with things in the world until our hearts grew weary. Lord, refresh us as we come into your presence. Refresh us as your word is spoken. Lord, quicken our hearts. I pray in your mighty name. Amen. All of the economic indicators were very positive. Employment was up. Production was up. Every sector of the economy looked promising. There was a positive attitude throughout the country. Everyone was saying the hard times are not going to come to us. We're going to prosper and we're going to do well. What's the next business venture we can open? Where can we find new markets for our goods and services? Let's let the economy roll. Good times are here. But the Lord had some other words to say about this good time economy. We find the account in the 28th chapter of the book of Isaiah. He begins to speak about Ephraim's wreath of honor. Ephraim is used as that term to designate all of Israel. In Israel, they had turned against the living God of heaven. They had intentionally set up those calf idols, the Baal idols. Now, you need to understand, they were doing the same thing we've become accustomed to in our culture. The Baal idol was literally looked upon as the God who would bring productivity in the agrarian culture. Baal was the one who sent the rain. He was the one who provided the the necessary sunshine. He was the one who, if he withdrew, prosperity fled. And so now we have, they're worshiping the Baal idols. They have turned away from Jerusalem. They no longer seek after the Lord God of heaven. Instead, they have established their own priesthood. They have established their own way of worship. They have substituted their festivals for the feasts of the Lord God of heaven. So now they no longer have a day of judgment, of atonement. They no longer have the same first fruit offerings, Pentecost. They don't have these. Instead, they have their own specialized services that totally omit any reference to obedience to God. Instead, everything is for the almighty piece of gold or silver or lifestyle. So Israel now is very prosperous, very sophisticated. Their economy is looking promising in every respect. And so God comes and he begins to address this as the wreath of Ephraim. Or today we would refer to it, we would say that they had won the ribbon, the gold ribbon. They have won best first place. 
Now, God begins to speak about this by saying, woe to that wreath. This is Isaiah 28, verse 1. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty set at the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. So he is saying, your economy looks wonderful. You are, you are winning all of the awards, but in your heart, you're drunk. There is a draining away. There is a hidden canker sore and it's draining away your life. And so while you continue to pursue the good times, you're stumbling because you can't maintain the pace. You can't maintain the life of consumption and still maintain your mean, lean machine to produce your income. And the Lord contrasts that in verse 5 by saying, in that day, the Lord Almighty will be glorious, will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He's coming back and saying, look, I am your wreath. I am for you everything. And you don't understand that. You don't see that. You've been deceived. And then he says in verse 6, he will be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. But then in verse 7, he says, and, and there these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophet stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. So he's saying, yes, you have your priests and you have your prophets. But as they go about establishing the decisions, the judgments, see, they were the court system for the day. They were the ones who ruled regarding crime. So the Lord is saying, as you are making your judgments and your decisions, you're reeling, you're drunk. But you see, this drunkenness has become a normal way of life for Israel. What would happen today if suddenly all of us were stricken with blindness? Well, it would be panic. But what if we had been all born blind? What if our grandma and grandpa were blind? Then if you could see, you would be strange. Normal life would be blindness. The Lord is saying your normal way of life is to stumble in drunkenness. That's all you've ever known is drunkenness. Your father and your grandfather and all the way back to Jeroboam, they were all drunkards. And so this is the only life you know. But then he becomes very graphic. Verse 8, all the tables are covered with vomit, and there's not a spot without filth. So he's saying, as you let the good times roll, as you continue to pursue your abundant lifestyles, as you continue to go after everything the world has to offer you, and as you practice your religion, the world loves religion. 
The world loves religion. And, and all religions lead to the same place when you're all drunk and everybody's vomiting. So then you need all of your psychiatrists to clean up the vomit and you pay them for doing it. And you have your doctors to clean it up, but you keep drinking what makes you sick. So Jesus is describing here for us in Isaiah, a whole culture of vomit, a whole culture of let the good times roll. Let's go for the best we can get. But in the process, the behind the scenes deal is filled with vomit and the stench. So today in America, it's let the good times roll. It's the economy is looking wonderful. Go for it. Unemployment is is down. All the sectors are positive. The stock markets are beginning to soar. Everything is heating up in the economy. There's no inflation. Interest rates are low. Now's the time. Grab your house. Refinance. Take the money and take a vacation with it. Let the good times roll. The problem is everybody's drunk. And so all of the sin is coming in and being accepted. The family's being destroyed. Our lives are eaten up with weariness and tiredness trying to stay ahead of the curve. Exhausted by trying to produce even more. I remember when I was a kid in school, they had all of these futurists predicting things that were going to happen. And they were predicting that prosperity was advancing at such a place and productability was, I mean, we would be spending 20 hours a week working. And, and the problem would be when I was an adult would that we would have so much leisure time that we were going to have to figure out what to do with all of our leisure time. You go back in Time magazine a few years ago and see the New Year's predictions for the future. Instead of that, As the good times have increased, the drunkenness has increased, the vomit has increased, and as we've struggled to make a go of it, we've had to work harder and harder. And now mom has to work as well as dad to make the house payment because now we live in barns, great gigantic castles with with air conditioning and heating and And the expenses are up and now we have the SUV and we have mixed into all of that is the vomit, the crime and the sin and the brokenheartedness and the the bitterness, the anger, the lusting after more, the desire to be a consumer. And so into this culture now, the Lord says, it is in verse 10, do and do, do and do. Rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little, a little there. Now, what's all that foolishness mean? Well, that's the best the Hebrew can do for baby talk. What, what the Lord is saying is that we're now like children who've just been weaned from their mama, but we can't talk yet. And he's saying, all of you who are seeking after all of these world goods, all of you who are seeking after all this lifestyle and you're and you're drunk, you can't even speak straight. Instead, when you open your mouth, foolishness comes out like a little baby, except you're a big adult. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear an adult talking like a baby, it's rather shocking. You know, I love little children, and I love to, to talk to them and have them respond with their cooing and with their 
their funny little noises and they're discovering things about themselves. Like our granddaughter just discovered that she can lift her hands up. And now you just talk to her, you say one word and her hands are right up in the air. Well, she doesn't want to be picked up. She just wants you to know she can pick her arms up. And, and I remember the day she discovered her tongue, the strangest noises coming out of this little one. You know, and all of that's cute. And we coo back and we make those funny noises back to her. But if Kevin starts making those noises up here on the front seat, and I have to get a cloth and wipe his face where the <laughs> spittle is coming down his chin. Now, that's not cute. That's not cute. I'm not going to come and get in Kevin's face and make doo-doo sounds back to him. Are you? I mean, that's not cute. That's the picture Jesus is giving us in the book of Isaiah of the culture we live in. Now, listen to what God has to say about this in verse 11. Very well, then. With foreign lips and strange tongue, God will speak to this people. He will He will say, this is the resting place, let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord will be to them, do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. What? He's saying, I'm going to come and speak to this people. And what I say to them will sound like a child's blabber. I'm going to come and speak to them my word, but they will not be able to understand my word. Instead, it will sound to them abnormal. Why? Because what we're accustomed to is the babble of humanism. What we're accustomed to is the vocabulary of God bless me and make me rich. What we're accustomed to is God loves me and he has unconditional love and I'm going to make it through and I'm able to sin and continue to walk with God, but, but I'm a sinner, but it doesn't matter because he loves me. I mean, this is baby talk. And so he's saying, now God is going to come and talk, but when you hear God talk, you're going to say, that's foolishness. I can't understand you because he's going to come and speak things about justice and integrity. He's going to come and speak about taking up your cross and following him. He's going to speak about things that in our culture are utter foolishness. I mean, today, the purpose-driven church is the vomit and the babble of the worldly church. And so it's well accepted among the worldly. It's a book of strategy for the worldly. And the body of Christ hears it and they say, yeah, that's our talk. But if you read this book carefully, you see that there is no mention of the cross. There is no mention of denying yourself. There's no mention of sin. No, no. Those words are babble to the ears of modern man. Don't confront me with sin. Don't tell me I have to change my ways. Don't tell me I have to walk a straight and narrow path. Hey, I want my TV and I want my this and I want my that and I want. And so it's Babel. So they will go and fall backward. 
be injured, snared, and captured. Therefore, verse 14, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the grave, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. Salvation to be real must deliver us from sin. Anything that claims to be a refuge but does not break the power of sin in our lives is a lie. And so the Lord is coming now and he's saying to us, look, you've entered into covenant with death with a lie. I said, Lord, what are the what are the lies we've made a covenant with? And I've listed a whole bunch of them. The first lie that rules today that we've made a covenant with is humanism. Humanism simply says that in every man there is a spark of good. That man is not totally deprived and wicked. Rather, with education and with opportunity, the very best of man can be developed. And he can be released to be all he can be. That's humanism. It's Gnosticism. It's the belief that every man is a God. Every woman is a God. And that all we need to have is an opportunity. And that can be releasing to us so that we can use our skills and our talents. We can have dreams and visions about the future and go and accomplish what we desire. We can build our babel. And we can make a name for ourselves. So with this humanistic spirit, we now are saying we can be nation builders. God is not the nation builder. We're the nation builder. And now we can go into a nation. We can sweep out the wicked Sodom Hussein. And we can now come in and we can rule over this nation. And we can make it a a place of democracy and freedom. I find in scripture that God is the nation builder, not America. We're not the judge. The Lord God of heaven is the judge. And yet we have a grand scheme. We're going to take over the whole Middle East. We are going to bring peace to Jerusalem. We are going to set up a separate Palestinian state. The Lord God of heaven said that property belongs to Israel. The Lord has said he is going to rule from Jerusalem. But never mind, our humanistic beliefs say that we can do a grand experiment and we can establish an independent Palestinian state. Well, I tell you what, the Lord will stir up all kinds of terror for America. And you see, as long as the terrorists are in Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan or Iraq, we can maintain this grand scheme. But what happens when they come to Washington? What happens when they come to New York? What happens when the mall blows up as we go in and anthrax spreads over the city? What happens when a suitcase atomic bomb goes off in the middle of Washington, D.C., and radioactivity spreads over the city? Then what will we do to nation build in Iraq, 
or Palestine. But you see this, this human spirit rises up and we say, let's do this grand deed of nation building. America, the proud. America, the leader of the world. I don't think so. The scriptures say that the Lord God of heaven is the leader. He's the nation builder. And he's the one who will deal with the hearts of men. We also, we also believe in the lie of our experience. We believe that our past experience predicts our future. That's a lie. My past experience does not predict where I will be in the future. For many of you, your past has been a series of accomplishments one after another as you have built for yourself a wealthy lifestyle in America. Oh, you say, I'm not wealthy. Oh, compare yourself to others in the world. We're very wealthy. Even the poorest in America is exceedingly wealthy. So we believe the lie that our past predicts that we will live a future of joy and productivity and happiness. That's a lie. The truth is, if we die to ourself, if we die to our dreams, and we are reborn in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we let go of the past, and we look to Jesus, we will then have a future and a hope. But we have this covenant with death that says, I'm a cat with nine lives. I'm a survivor. If I can't do this, I'll do that. If I can't make money here, I'll go there. I'm a survivor. That if I just work hard, I can get ahead in life. It's a lie that I have made a refuge. And then, of course, another great lie that America is sold on. It's called Social Security. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to get old and I'm going to retire. and The government is going to cover my cost. And some of you may today be already getting your Social Security. And that enables you to while away your time, retired. You know what? That's a lie. The scripture does not know anything about retirement. In the scripture, there is no such thing as retirement. There is retreading. (laughs) There is getting a new life. There is stepping into service for the king. There is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and doing what he calls us to do, no matter what the cost. There is never idle death. I mean, I have to go to the nursing home so often to visit. And the single characteristic of the nursing home that causes me such anguish every time I step in the door is I see all these people waiting to die, whiling away their time, playing cards or bingo, sitting in front of the television, knitting, waiting to die, each very concerned about their portion of food that is to be delivered at the appropriate time on the tray at their bed. And then when they don't like the look of the food or the smell of the food, they're very upset and push the tray away. I don't want that. Give me some real food. I'm waiting to die. Well, it's a lie. I'm not waiting to die. 
I'm waiting to live. I'm waiting for this body of death to be transformed with a body of life. I'm waiting to leave this shell of a human body behind and step into that glorious body promised by Jesus Christ. I'm not waiting to die. I'm waiting to live. And when you ask someone in the nursing home, are you waiting to die or are you waiting to live? They think you're talking baby nonsense. Don't understand it. It astonishes me that somebody can push away their dinner because they don't like it and then say, I wish I could just die. You push away your food because you don't like it. And you say, I wish I could die. Now, none of you are in the nursing home. I trust none of you are doing that. Pushing away what doesn't suit your taste and saying, if I can't have my way, I'd rather just die. You're waiting to die or are you waiting to live? What are you looking for? Are you just putting in time until you're out of here? You waiting to live, earnestly searching after Jesus, pressing into him. They've made a covenant with death. Some of you've made a covenant with death with the church. You've said, if I can be a part of the right church, then I'm going to live. Or some of you've made an an agreement with orthodox theology. And you've said, if I can just understand everything correctly, if I can just nail it down, if I can have it, then I'm going to live. Some of you have made a covenant of death with, with a root of self, that no matter what, you're going to survive. No matter what, you're going to survive. And the, and the word of God will come and beat against you like the waves of the ocean, but you are like a rock. And you're saying, I have got to live. And Jesus, I'm willing to listen to you, but I'm going to live. It's a covenant with death. The TV is a covenant with death. The video games, the internet, the food, the work, the family, anger, lying, stealing, vain imaginations. They're all covenants with death if we look to them and expect that they will give us life. Possessions, that house, that car, those clothes, that style. No, we Americans are very interesting. When the hippies came, I was working in Georgetown, a coffee house, Christian coffee house, running a free medical clinic. It was interesting to me that the hippies would come in and it looked like they were dressed in the strangest of clothing, tie-dye. I mean, it was every kind of strange clothing. But what I discovered and what I learned in watching them is that they dressed with the greatest of care. It was their image. Today, you see a young man walking down the street and he looks sloppy, baggy pants, baggy shirt. I mean, he looks like he's just a mess. But you know what? He's a very carefully orchestrated mess. Yes. (laughs) He has paid a great deal of attention to having on the right sneakers and to have them unlaced in just the right way. He's paid careful attention to his appearance. You see someone who, whose hair is sticking up every direction. Do you know how hard it is to get your hair to stick up like that? Expensive. 
I mean, that is a very carefully designed appearance. It is a part of a culture. So in America, we identify our our life by this culture that we paint a picture of because that's who we want to be. All of these are lies. It's a covenant with death. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, day and night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. What he's saying is, there is a sure foundation. And this covenant with death is not a sure foundation. The bitterness of our heart does not provide a sure foundation. The intellectual ability to make money does not create a sure foundation. The ability to dress ourselves so that we look like a certain portion of the culture, have the right vocabulary and the right moves, does not create security. (laughs) He's saying a time is coming when I'm going to send a hailstorm through and it is going to break down every covenant you've made with death. And I'm going to use judgment and I'm going to use righteousness and I'm going to use a plumb line. Now today, if the Lord comes to you and says, lay down here, I'm going to put the plumb line on your life and I want to see how you measure up. How will you measure up? Will he see that you have made covenants with death? And will he have to send judgments into your life to break down and to uncover and to expose those covenants with death that you have made? Those those wicked statements that we make to our own heart that says, if I can't have it my way, I just want to die. If I can't have it my way, I'm going to be depressed. If I can't have it my way, I'm going to be feisty and angry and nasty. If I can't have it my way, it's going to be the highway. If I can't have it my way, I'm just going to get in the refrigerator and eat everything that's in it. Or else if I can't have it my way, I'll just eat nothing. If I can't have it my way, what then for you? Lord is saying, I'm going to send a hailstorm and it's going to uncover every lie that you have agreed with and every lie that you've made a covenant with. And you are going to be totally exposed and you're going to feel like you're laying on a bed that's not long enough for you to stretch out on. You're going to feel like a cold morning with a blanket that has shrunk and it's not big enough to cover you. So you're going to cover this arm 
and this one's going to be cold. And then you're going to shift it over to this side, and then this side's going to freeze. I mean, can you imagine? Have you ever slept on a bed where you just can't get covered up right? He's saying, you're going to be miserable. Now, what's he saying, really? He's saying, as I begin to expose in your life those covenants of death that you have made, you're going to be very uncomfortable. Now, some of you would just rather not come here than be exposed to this kind of preaching because you honestly believe you can go to the good times place and you're going to make it. You know, if, if I just don't deal with the issues that come up between my wife and myself, if I act as though everything is all right, if I just keep faking it and let the anger and bitterness rise up in my heart, I can just make it through by always smiling and being happy and always doing it right. But then when we're alone together, we'll either kill each other or not talk. No, we made a vow to each other. We made a vow that we would be totally transparent with each other. No hiddenness, no furniture gathering between us to separate our hearts. We made a covenant to be one through good times bad. Jesus is coming to you and he's saying, I'm going to uncover every covenant with death that you've made. I'm going to expose your drunkenness. I'm going to expose every point of wickedness. Everything you have trusted in, I'm going to expose it as weak and unable to meet your needs. Now watch. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perezim, he will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work. What is his strange work? Always in scripture, God's judgment is spoken of as strange work. Why? Because God has a heart of love. We're told in 1 John that God is love, but God is more than love. He is also judgment. And here he's telling us, the Lord is going to rise up as he did at Mount Perezim. Perezim. What was that? Well, Perez in the Hebrew means to break out. David has just been anointed king over Israel. He has just been brought in. He is now the sitting king over all of Israel. And the Philistines hear about it and they say, let's go kill us a king. Let's end this uprising. And so hordes of chariots, a mighty army like the sands of a seashore come rolling to destroy this new king in Israel. And the scriptures say that at Perizam, God broke out against the Philistines. And he destroyed them. Well, the Philistines now retreat. They reorganize. They enlist more men. They find more chariots. And they come rolling back in the valley of Gibeon to totally destroy this new king. And God out again. And he destroys the Philistines. He's saying, I'm going to come and break out like this again in your life. And I am going to destroy these covenants of lies that you have made with death. Now, that's either very good news or very bad news. 
If you hunger after Jesus Christ, your heart rejoices and you say, come, break out, almighty God, break out now. Release me from these bondages. Release me from these lies. Many of these lies I don't even know are lies. I've been told they were the truth all my life. My grandpa believed him. My great-grandpa believed him. It's just been the way I've been. And now the Lord God is saying, I'm going to come and break down with, a, with judgment every one of those lies. And I'm going to release you and set you free. I'm going to break out. I'm going to kill the Philistines. Any of you have any Philistines in your life that you yes. need Jesus to come and break out against? Almighty God, come and break out against these Philistines, yes. these lies that I have believed and hung on to. Now the Lord says in verse 16, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. This is the covenant with life. It's saying, look, you cannot rescue yourself from the covenant with death. You are totally given over to that covenant. But I'm going to break out against this covenant. I'm going to come and break out against it. I'm going to bring hail. I'm going to bring water. I'm going to flood you out of your hidey caves. I'm going to wash you out of this thing. I'm going to break out like I did for David to deliver you from this covenant of death. And there is now a covenant of life that I invite you to come into. It is a tested cornerstone. This is not some second thought. This is something that's been tested and tried, and it is a cornerstone that you can stand on. It's a sure foundation. Well, look with me at the description of this cornerstone once more. Look in Romans, the ninth chapter. He's saying the Jewish people have stumbled over this stumbling stone. But now he quotes again in Romans 9.33, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And then he says in verse 8, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we have these covenants of lie, of death. And we've trusted in those. And the Lord is saying, I want you to make a transition. I want you to intentionally choose to allow those lies to be destroyed. I'll break out against them like I did at Perizim. I'll break out against them. I'll kill those Philistines for you. And he's saying, come and trust in this cornerstone. Trust in this covenant with life that I have created for you. You didn't create the covenant. I created the covenant. Now come and trust in this covenant of life. Put your confidence in this covenant. Now, let me speak very practically. 
day by day, we have to look at every activity that we engage in. We have to look at the thoughts that come to our mind, and we have to apply a simple test to every activity and every thought. And that is, will this line of thinking deliver me from the bondage of sin, or is this line of thinking a lie? There is only a refuge when it breaks the power of sin. And so will pursuing the NASCARs, pursuing the Redskins, pursuing some other sport, will that deliver me from sin? If that will not deliver me from sin, then my pursuit of that is a covenant with death. And it's that which Jesus then has to come and break out against in my life to free me from that covenant of life so that I can confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And each of us then has to identify those old patterns of thinking, those excuses, those places where we go, those things that we do, and ask every one of them right up front the question, if I pursue you, if I give myself to you, will you deliver me from sin? Now, Jan and I both come from a background that loves sporting activity. Not professional sports, sports activity. We love to ski. We love to boat. We love to to bicycle. And when we get into a sport, we want to get into it all the way. We want to buy the outfit. We want to buy the right equipment. I mean, I don't want a a bike from Target. No, I want an $1,100 or $1,500 bike. I want a real bike. And it can't just be any bike. I want the bike with the right handlebars. I I want the right drinking equipment to keep myself hydrated while I ride. I want the helmet. I want the shoes, right? I, I want the chamois. I want, I want it all. And I want to do that with my wife. So we can take time and go and just bicycle and have wonderful times recreating. But you see, then I have to ask a question. <laughs> Will that $5,000 investment break the bondage of sin in my life? If the answer is no, then it's a refuge of lies. And I need the Lord God of heaven to break out against that. I love to scuba dive. You know, not only do I want to be able to go scuba dive, I don't want to rent the equipment. I want the little Honda, the neat deal. I can put my tanks in and wash it out after I'm done. So I want the right SUV. I want the tanks. I want the equipment. And then I need a place where I can go dive. And obviously there's no diving off the East Coast up here that's worth So I've got to go to the islands. Well, will my investing in all of that wonderful activity break the power of sin in my life? Some of you are collectors. You collect salt shakers. Well, there's nothing wrong with collecting a few salt shakers. But what happens after the whole living room is taken over by salt shakers? And and what happens now when I want to go to all of the trading events? And I want to take all of my salt shakers in their specially designed boxes. And I want to go set up a table at the trading event. And now my social life is trading salt shakers or matchbooks 
or the little cars? Will engaging in all of that break the power of sin in my life? Then it's a refuge of lies. Will spending all of my time building up my business and advancing my cause financially break the power of sin in my life? If not, then all of my pursuit of my business endeavors is a refuge of lies. Now, I tell you, I could live a hundred lives and not get to do everything I want to do. Have you ever just wanted to get in the car and spend the next 30 days driving around America and visiting the parks and staying in nice hotels and camping and just, just having a good life? Well, maybe that doesn't get you excited, but I can't help but start looking at brochures and magazines and If I could go here and where's the itinerary and, well, that break the power of sin in my life. If I sit down tonight and watch a couple hours of television, will that break the power of sin in my life? If I go see the movie, The Passion, will that break the power of sin in my life? I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to who went and saw The Passion. And when I ask them the question, Did it cause you to repent for your sin? I have not had one person say yes. See, these covenants with lies, this covenant with death doesn't care what form or shape it takes on. All it cares is that you make the deal with death. And we've come to a place now where we have to have the breaking out of the Holy Spirit among us to quicken our hearts, to cause us to recognize that these are lies and that life is not going to be found in them, that life is found in Jesus Christ, that the, that the coming into the presence of Jesus breaks every bondage of sin, that when I come into his presence and I read his word, when I walk in obedience to his commands, when I pour my life out loving and caring for others at his command, the power of sin is broken in my life. When I deal with my wife with kindness and courtesy, when I deal with her in a way that respects her as a person, the power of sin is broken in my life. When I lay aside my own selfish heart and I care more about you than me, The power of sin is broken in my life. See, the word is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith we're proclaiming. See, what I'm talking to you about today is trusting in Jesus. Trusting Jesus to break out against the lies in your life and to bring you into his presence and to heal and bind up those broken places to pour his oil and his wine into your heart and to cause those bondages of sin to be broken away from you, to come by faith and believe that Jesus is enough. I mean, enough for your car, enough for your house, enough for your children, that he will pour out into your life all that is necessary to sustain you and to carry you until you are safely in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What is this passage in Romans, the eighth chapter? Romans, the eighth chapter. Let me begin with verse 31. 
Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These lies cannot separate us from Jesus' heart if we will allow him to break out against them, if we'll give him authority to expose these lies, whether by floods or by hailstones. And as those lies are exposed and we turn and confess the name of Jesus Christ and put our trust in him, he will not deny us. He will rescue us and he will carry us and he will provide for us. Know what joy it is for me to come to the National Prayer Chapel and look at this little congregation. Say, this is what the Lord has done. This is what the Lord has done. This is not what flesh did. This is what Jesus has done. He brought your heart. He's dealing with you. Each of us comes and we give to the Lord as he's asked us to give. This is what he is doing. I've stood before congregations of three, four, five thousand to preach the word. And it was filled with a flesh people. It was religious culture. It was a money program. If the Holy Spirit were totally withdrawn, everything would continue as it were going right then. We didn't need the Holy Spirit. We had a good social deal going. But what if the Holy Spirit withdrew from the National Prayer Chapel? We'd be gone. Springs of living water would be off the air. It would be over. Because this is not flesh. Spirit. We've asked him to break every covenant with death. We've asked him to expose every lie. We seek after the face of Jesus Christ. We hunger after him. We ask him to convict us and to change us, to mold us and to make us to Jesus. Now, Lord, as we conclude this time together, I'm going to ask as a sovereign act of grace that you would break out, Holy Spirit, against every lie held by each person in the National Prayer Chapel. Lord, I ask you to allow no lie to stand. Lord, I ask that the truth would be lifted up. Lord, I ask that the truth would be made supreme. For you are the way and the truth and the life. So Jesus, would you rule today? Now, I know in my asking this that I'm asking for painful, painful breaking 
Lord, I still must, I still must ask for it. Lord, today I make a covenant with life to trust in that sure cornerstone, that tested cornerstone. And I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I believe in my heart that he has risen from the dead. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. We're located in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our website address is nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you.